0: Just, yeah, this is on. This is just all I got today. Uh, I have, I had a cold this week that appears to have turned into laryngitis. That's theory one. Theory two is that I was just so excited when Iowa lost to Nebraska. I mean, <laughs> who loses to Nebraska? That was pathetic. It was so funny. Oh man, what a what a good glorious day after Thanksgiving it was this year. Um, and all God's people said, amen. You guys didn't join me that time. That's weird. Um, usually you join me. I I thought you would join me. Um, so you guys get a sermon. Uh, second service is going to get charades is how this is, how this, they're going to get charades or a video. I think we'll see by God's grace, they'll get a sermon too, but I'm kind of hoping for charades. This will be a Gethsemane will be really challenging. We'll see what they're up to. Um, Let's pray and then uh, dig into God's word together. Father, we, we do thank you for this day. We thank you that you give us grace and mercy for every new day. And we thank you that you had a rescue plan that was centered on you giving Yourself. And not on making us try harder because You know we can't. But it's centered completely on Your Son coming from glory to the manger and from the manger over the course of 30-some years to the cross. Lord, we praise You for that in Jesus. We are so grateful that you agonized and suffered and bled and died for us so that we could be called children of God. Lord, we pray that you would help us in this time to uh, study your word faithfully, to hear from your spirit, and to be challenged and and changed in the way we walk with you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Throughout the Book of Mark and Jesus' ministry, we've we've seen this kind of ominous character take form, and that 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 character is called the crowds, and they've always been around Jesus. Jesus is outside of you know and mark doesn't even go into detail of Jesus's time in the wilderness but we know from the other gospels that Jesus leads this kind of quiet life gets baptized goes to the wilderness for 40 days of fasting and praying and he's tested by satan and then he comes out and his public ministry begins and it seems like the moment his public ministry starts, there's always a crowd. And in Mark, this crowd has this weird emphasis. And they're at the beginning, they're at best a nuisance. They, they seem to be almost contrary to the mission of Christ. They're trying to make him king too early. They're blocking people from getting to Jesus who need Jesus. They're prohibiting Jesus and his disciples from eating They're crowding out everyone who's there for the right reasons. They're they're these spectators that seem to be greedy. And then partway through the ministry, we see Jesus has compassion on them because they're sheep without a shepherd. And and a change begins to occur where the people are coming to Jesus not to watch a fancy miracle, but to hear life-giving teaching. And they, they go from being an obstruction to the ministry of Jesus, to being the object of the ministry of Jesus. And the crowd almost, it it looks as though like the crowd is being sanctified throughout the book of Mark to the point where they are pulling branches off of trees, throwing their own cloaks before Jesus and proclaiming, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest to Jesus. Jesus. It was coming in to, to Jerusalem and they're proclaiming who he is. This passage that we're looking at today, however, as we continue our move to the cross, is a major turning point where we see Jesus from surrounded by crowds and disciples to being fully deserted and alone with his enemies. And while Jesus is performing or getting ready to perform his greatest work, he'll have to do so without the disciples, without them to offer support, without them to offer friendship and company, to help in the task, He'll have to do it without the crowd he has shepherded as they will be chanting crucify in less than 24 hours from what this text details. He'll have to do it all with the sting of desertion in his heart. But that will not stop him from doing what he came to do. And so let's, let's read... Um, Mark, starting in verse 26, and we're going to read through, the, uh, through verse 52. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him. Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place that is called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to the point of death. Remain here and watch. And going on a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, Are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. And immediately, and they all left him and fled. A young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Jesus is intentionally walking towards his saving work on the gruesome cross, even as he will have to do so alone Without his disciples. The whole passage we are looking at today and what we will be looking at through the remainder of the year carries a heavy, heavy sadness to it. Today, in particular, the sadness comes as a surprise for the reader as they seem to be at this great relational high point just right before this, celebrating the Passover, hearing about the new covenant. Yes, hearing about a betrayer, but the new covenant overshadowing the betrayer. And after singing, they get to the Mount of Olives. Perhaps the 11 are feeling relieved that it was Judas and not them who was dipping bread with Jesus. But Jesus informs them that their own loyalty will prove less than absolute. He says to them, you will all fall away. And his words to the disciples in the gardens, indeed the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, is going to ring true for the disciples throughout this entire passage, throughout this whole night and the next day. Right now, though, the disciples, in this moment with Jesus in the garden, their emotion... Uninformed as it may be, their emotion is outweighing their fear. They just had their first communion. Shouts of Hosanna are still ringing in their ears. Jesus knows, however, that their fear will become their driving factor. And with all the emotional intensity of that night and the last three years, Peter does what I think most of us would do. He declares his emotion strongest of all. And he, I really hope there's a paraphrased version out there where Peter looks back and says, though these schmucks may leave you, I will not. Because I, I hear him say this. Look, Jesus. and I, Maybe like he did one of these, like, hey, if all these guys leave you, I'm not going to. Like, I just wonder what those other guys were thinking. I bet they loved that. I'm sure one of them's like, ah, Peter's such a jerk. But even Peter in his grandiose moments speaking out in ignorant emotion, he is not only corrected, but he's actually prophesied against by Jesus. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter, he's not to be, want he's not to be given a lack of the last word. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. They all go on to say the same. But Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. It's bound in Scripture that the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. They're all going to leave him. This is so painful to read after all they've been through that they're going to leave him. But we need to look at all the words that Jesus said to him and not just a cliff's notes version of it. Because I don't think the cliff's notes would have verse 28 in it. You're going to desert me. You're going to deny me. You're all going to flee. And then we have verse 28 but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Even as Jesus knows, they're going to desert him. He also knows this is not the end. And he gives this subtle, this subtle promise. I'm going to rise, and I'm going to lead you again. I know Your flesh is weak. I know your fear will rule the day and you will abandon me. But I also know I will lead you again. J.C. Ryle says this. This is a long quote, but please listen closely. Let us take comfort in the thought that our Lord Jesus does not throw off his believing people because of failures and imperfections. He knows what they are. He takes them. As a husband takes a wife, with all their blemishes and defects, joined to him by faith, he will never put them away. He is a merciful and compassionate high priest. It is his glory to pass over the transgression of his people to cover their many sins. Listen to this. He knew what they were before conversion. Wicked, guilty, and defiled, yet he loved them. Listen to this. He knows what they will be after conversion. Weak, erring, and frail. Yet he loves them. He has undertaken to save them, notwithstanding all their shortcomings. And what he has undertaken, he will perform. Isn't that good news? What a great picture of the promise we have in Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Here, Jesus has been betrayed by Judas. He's about to be forsaken. And in, in this, we still see a glimpse of Christ's unforsaking love for his followers. So he walks towards this gruesome cross, alone, without his disciples, but with the Father's will. Sometimes, even when things have been going well, we can see significant parts of our lives that are about to unravel. Or maybe we're in the midst of things unraveling right now. Times where life seems to hit the fan or you just know it's going to get worse. And how a, ha- how a person handles that pain or that precipice of pain says a lot about them. Jesus is on the precipice of pain. He knows that in a few hours he's going to be handed over to the chief priests. He knows what's coming the next day. As we are on the different, those different precipices of pain, we would be wise to learn from watching the Son of God. He knows his disciples are gonna flee. He knows that he will be alone. (coughs) He knows his most devout follower in Peter will deny him three times and that there's an excruciating death ahead of him. And instead of finding food that pairs well with emotion, and just eating his feelings and pining away until it happens. Something I might do. Jesus does the only thing and the greatest thing he can. He gets alone and he prays. He prays about what he's about to face. And if God incarnate needed this, how much do we, May our reflex to stop and earnestly pray only grow from wherever it is right now. And so let's look at the content of Jesus' prayer. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He prayed that for an hour, went and prayed again, and went and prayed again. His prayer is a demonstration of submission to God, of trust in God. And here we see Jesus submitting verbally through prayer to God. But he starts by leaning into his relationship. Abba, Father. This is not a manipulative plea or appeal to God to get some sort of special treatment. He's not, Jesus isn't in the garden going, I mean, I am your favorite son. But this is a full leaning into who he knows God to be as his Father. He is reminding himself as much as he's reminding God as though any reminder were needed. As Jesus faces the cross, he knows exactly how God feels about him. And in our pain and in our suffering, to appeal to who God is and his love for us and who he is as our Abba Father is is not about saying, God, you forgot I'm your kid. Why don't you just change some things here? It's about us saying, God, you are fully in control and you love me more than I can know. And so I know that even in this suffering, I have a security because of your love for me. He leans into that relationship. He knows that God is not mean-spirited. He's not apathetic. He is Abba, Father. And secondly, he prays with faith. God, you can do anything. Anything is possible for you. He prays with faith that his suffering would be averted, that the hour might pass from him Jesus has full confidence that if there is another way to provide salvation in the world, another way to fulfill the promises of God, that God the Father, who is loving and infinitely able, will accomplish that. Here we see the, the, the deity and humanity of Christ. As he knows the significance of the next 24 hours, and the the physical and spiritual spiritual anguish they will bring him. I just feel the need, like, and this is a little bit of a tangent, to point something out, maybe corrective for you. If you have ever been praying for something to go away, or to be healed, or to change, and it hasn't changed and someone has ignorantly told you that you didn't have enough faith, I wonder what they would counsel Jesus in this moment. Would they dare to tell Jesus that had he prayed with more faith, God would have provided a salvation that did not include a cross? The idea that you don't have enough faith when you're praying in confidence and God still leads you through suffering, the idea that you didn't have enough faith is a garbage guilt trip. And if somebody's counseling you that if you had had enough faith, would you kindly direct them to Gethsemane and ask them to consider their counsel for Jesus in this moment? That kind of counsel, as you can tell, gets me a little upset. So he leans into his relationship with his father. He prays with faith. And he emphasizes the will of God above all else. The emphasizing of the will of God, God, your will be done and not mine, is not a backdoor excuse for when miracles don't happen. It is an honest, true submission to God. God, I desire for this situation to change, but I know that you know more than me and that if it does not change, that you have a purpose and an intent in that, that I'm not able to understand right now. And so he, he gives himself to the trust of God the Father, to honoring God the Father, to submitting to God the Father. There's almost here a picture of Psalms of lament. Psalm 13 comes to mind where where the psalmist goes from despair and loneliness and greatly troubled to having a peace and knowing who God is. And and Jesus seems to be in this very similar trajectory of I know the next 24 hours are going to hurt a lot. And I don't want to do that, but I know who God is. I know what his promises are. I know what he can accomplish, and I trust him. Father, your will be done and not my own. It's interesting, the disciples have said, we will never leave you, Jesus. And yet they already have. As they can't even stay awake to watch. They can't stay awake to watch and pray they just continually fall asleep over and over again. They are completely without excuse. The disciples, their voiced commitment has already been externally tested and they have failed. But the father is not. Jesus was physically alone. Those closest to him were sleeping while he is in complete agony. They don't have their hands on his shoulder. They're not watchful for the mob that's about to come. They're not even empathetic. They are asleep. They've missed the urgency of this moment. They've opted for weakness and fatigue of the flesh. Their spirit was willing. Their flesh was weak. Jesus only needed them to do one thing, and they did not. Jesus was alone, but he was not. He had the company of prayer. And even in our most lonely moments, we can have that same company as well. Let us not opt to gratify even the non-sinful desires of the flesh, instead to press on to what the Lord has for us in the moment, to continually seek Him. But this agony of Jesus, that He is sorrowful even to death, that He's pouring His heart out this way, J C Ryle says this we ought to see in our lord's agony in gethsemane the exceeding sinfulness of sin it is a subject on which the thoughts of professing christians are far below where they should be the careless light way in which such sins as swearing sabbath breaking lying and the like are often spoke of is painful evidence of the low condition of our moral feelings Let the recollection of Gethsemane have a sanctifying effect on us. Whatever others do, let us never mock the making amends of sin. I hope that as we reflect on Gethsemane, as we reflect on Jesus' agony, on the depth of this short prayer, I hope that it would only hurry our repentance. And knowing what Christ did to obtain our salvation and what he went through. So he is without his disciples. He is with the Father's will. And as he's doing all this alone, he is scandalously arrested. Jesus has just prayed. Father, could you let this pass? Not your will, but not my will, but your will be done. And after he's finished praying this prayer for hours, he receives his answer to his prayer as Judas and this motley crew of priests and their, their subjects come out to take Jesus in. And Judas, gives us this lasting metaphor of the darkness and deceit of sin. He knew what was going to happen to Jesus when Jesus was betrayed, when he handed him over. He knew what they would do. And so he says, hey, the one I kiss, that's the guy. The one I greet as my closest friend, as though I haven't seen him in a long time, that's the guy. And when I do that, you go ahead and you seize him and you take him in. As though Jesus has done some great wrong against Judas. He betrays the Son of God with a sign of affection, but sin has no friendship with Jesus. This hypocritical act of affection and respect should stand as a warning for how our flesh will justify, twist, and act to get its way. Judas should have been appalled at his own audacity. And we know that when it was too late, he was. But instead, he went, led the crowd, and got his paycheck. And he sees Jesus. And he says, Rabbi. And he kisses him. And hands him over. Peter sees the evil in this no doubt recognizes Judas Iscariot. Before we get to there, we have to look at this unnecessary mob because what follows Judas's kiss is a whole lot of unnecessary. We have an unnecessary mob. They come out with clubs, with swords. And Jesus even says to them, have you, have you come against me as a, as a robber? swords and clubs like look every day i was out in the open you could have grabbed me anytime you wanted let the scriptures be fulfilled so we have this unnecessary mob jesus was not violent he was fully available what's more jesus would have walked himself to the cross if need be The, unnecess- the unnecessary of this mob only points to their intention and their evil. So Peter sees this evil and he, he, he responds with unnecessary violence. I've heard a lot to be made whether what Peter was exactly trying to do. He was not a skilled swordsman. He might have been trying to decapitate this guy and was so slow and so off point that he had just got an ear. Uh, The easiest part of the head to cut off, I assume. I haven't tried. Uh, I just want to make that clear. But Peter, in this moment of passion, he forgets two things. First, Jesus is not concerned with bringing an earthly kingdom in earthly ways of force and violence, Jesus is concerned with bringing a heavenly kingdom by heavenly means. Secondly, And this this may be a stretch for some, but maybe, just maybe, the guy who walked on water, the guy who cast a legion of demons out, the guy who demons just like fell in fear before, the guy who called Lazarus out of the tomb, the guy who said, peace be still, and a storm stopped and a giant lake subsided to glass. Maybe... Just maybe that guy doesn't need my dagger. Maybe my physical strength does nothing for him. Jesus can do it all. He doesn't want Peter's sword. He wants Peter's heart and obedience. And here, Peter's willingness to fight for Jesus, his flesh takes over and he does it the wrong way. The spirit is right, the flesh is too strong. Let us always remember how Peter actually worked for the kingdom of God in accordance with Christ. Preaching on the day of Pentecost, planting churches, writing scripture. Suffering. His great example of gospel work His repentance even as an apostle when he did wrong things. But here in the chaos of this moment, we finally see it. The full desertion of the disciples. They all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Fear takes over. Their fear is now their motivating factor, not their allegiance to Jesus. But these were men who would go on to suffer greatly for the sake of Christ. And one thing it shows me is that I really, really, really need the Lord's help and the Holy Spirit's leading for me to effectively take up my cross and follow Jesus. I can't do it on my own. We have this kind of comical scene of this this young streaker. Some people think it was Mark. Some people think it was one of the other disciples. But it definitely points to this. There's reason for the disciples to feel like they were in danger. This guy's getting seized. And this guy, in this moment, the, the danger feels so real to him that he's more willing to run away naked through the countryside of Galilee than he is to stay there with Jesus. Jesus did this alone. His verbal submission and his physical submission to God come together seamlessly. But let's think for a moment. What what benefit would there be to any of us had any of the disciples gone through it all and died on the cross with Jesus? Jesus had to do it alone because he had to die on the cross for them. Jesus did it alone because pick your favorite disciple. Him dying on the cross for you does zero good for you. Only Jesus could do this work. Andrew, James, and John on the cross does nothing for us. Jesus was deserted. Jesus went where none of them could go. He went where we cannot go. But he also went where and through what they and we absolutely needed him to do. He suffered and died. We're going to look at this over the next three weeks this trial and the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. Because we needed this so badly. He is such a good Savior. Let's pray. Father, we we do ask for your help. We ask for your, your forgiveness, where there are so many times that our flesh overtakes our spirit. And we don't think our pride is a big deal, we don't think our greed is a big deal. We don't think our deceit is a big deal, but Lord, it's a really big deal to you. And so Lord, help us to walk with you righteously and in holiness. And Lord, thank you. Jesus, thank you for submitting your will to the Father so that we can also call him Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.